Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Let's list some ways that a person can be or feel to be um, confined. What are some ways a person can be confined? Okay, jail is going to be one of our big themes today. Good. Well, simply if they're unable to get out of their own house. Ah, oh, yeah, amazing. So they are, they are um, a shut-in. Yeah. Right. Ill or elderly. Yeah. I remember one of the coolest uses of social media, I remember, during um, uh, what happened in New York? Uh, Was it a hurricane five years ago or something really bad in New York? Was it Hurricane Sandy? Yeah, Hurricane Sandy. And um, um, Hurricane Sandy... Um, I remember people being like, my aunt lives in Manhattan and she's stuck in her apartment, she can't get out, she can't get any water, and people would respond and they'd go and help her. Hi, Steve, how are you doing? <laughs> and, um, and people would, would, would help those people. Okay, so Steve, we're sharing ways that um, someone can be confined. So far we have um, a jail or uh, we have uh, someone who's shut into their home. How else can someone be confined? Fear. Fear, yeah. Okay, fear. Uh, some have suggested fear is the primary motive of human beings. Uh, the evolutionary, more than anything, whether it has to do with uh, the choices we make are fear-driven. Uh, we could agree or disagree. Um, but fear, yeah, very, very dominant. What else? Slavery. Slavery, okay. Various kinds of slavery. Sex slavery. Uh, I mean, obviously, historical slavery, but... Um, you know, in some, there's modern, new modern forms of slavery as well. So that's, uh, that's very interesting. Okay. Uh, what else? Economic. Economic. Okay. Where you lack social mobility. If you live in the global south or you were born into poverty and you basically just can't pick yourself up from your bootstraps, you can't, you can't um, move out of your position. Yeah. You're stuck in, in th- working three jobs or in deep poverty. Yeah. Okay. What else? A bad relationship, right? People have been stuck in a, a terrible marriage or an abused child, right? You're confined uh, to this space you feel you can't get out of. Abusive family. Um, and how about, how about mental? Mental illness. Trapped within depression. Um, so, uh, and then I think also, yeah, please, yeah. Age, yeah, age. Yeah. Yeah, great, great. Um, I also think ideology. I think some people are trapped in an ideology that they feel, let's take an obvious, you know, they're born into orthodoxy and they can't get out of it. Or they have a a fundamental orientation to the world, but they know it's too narrow, but they can't see beyond it and there's no one to help them come out, right? They feel stuck in seeing the world in one way um, that makes them unhappy or that they know isn't true or at least not fully true and... So they feel confined to that. Um, I, I, yeah. Once, uh, yeah. I, I don't know her name. She, was yeah. the, she is the daughter of former President Reagan, um, Smith or something like that. And she had uh, sort of an acrimonious relationship with her brothers, but they spent Thanksgiving together all the time. Yeah. And somebody asked her, how do, you, how do you do that? Why do you do that? She said, homeostasis. We're just used mm. to the way things are going. Yeah, yeah. And we accept the rigid confines of our mm. relationship, and that's what gets us through. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it's not always clear that someone will choose freedom over familiar confinement. I remember being in Ukraine and meeting um, elderly Jews who said that um, 
they preferred um, the steady fish delivery of, of communism over freedom without the fish. Freedom is not always um, you know, the choice. Someone also might be wise enough to know that you know, um, a bad marriage might be better than you know, being alone or than uh, other, other things that come out of divorce. Um, you know, that's certainly not always the case. So, um, uh, so confinement is, not, is, 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 uh, is, a, is a tricky thing. And, and to be sure, as we started, social ju justice issues are also existential issues. And so, so there's always a cost-benefit analysis of do I want to be free, right? Do I want to take, the, um, you know, take that pill that Morpheus is offering um, towards, that, towards, towards freedom? Uh, because freedom can be challenging also. And so I want to look at a number of sources. <coughs> Excuse me. Some that look at animals, some that look at prison, and that's kind of like the issue we're looking at, the intersection of those two, but then also that branch into broader issues, issues of human freedom. So um, here's a source sheet. And please, um, um, I'm relying on your, um, uh, your participation so I can, uh, I can continue to get clarity on this issue. Um, Eddie, why don't you start for us? The Mishnah in Bava Kama. So, um, as you know, the Talmud has two parts. The first part is the Mishnah. The second part is the Gemara. The Mishnah is written roughly from Z the first two centuries. Um, and then, uh, well, you know, from zero to 200, let's say. And then 200 to 500, roughly, is when the Gemara is, or not written, but is, is, uh, is, is discussed, is formulated. And so the Mishnah um, in Bava Kama is dealing with property law. So... Uh, Eddie, go ahead. And it went out and caused damage. He is exempt. If he has not shut it and prepared it, and it went out and caused damage, he is liable. If the pen was broken through at night, or Ben broke through it, and the flock came out and caused damage, he is not liable. If the bandit brought out the flock, the bandits are liable. Okay, great. So there's a lot of people in Yeshiva watch grapple with this case and the commentaries, you know, over and over. Um, these cases are actually strangely relevant. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was asked whether secondhand smoke was a problem, whether it is a, um, a legal problem. And he took a case where in someone's backyard there was a cherry tree and a bird would grab the cherry from one tree and fly to the neighbor's house and drop the cherries on the roof of the other house. And the, the second homeowner uh, claimed damages from the first homeowner. And he said, well, I didn't directly do anything. The bird did it, <laughs> right? Um, and he used that as a case for secondhand smoke of, of what does it mean for something sort of traveling through the air uh, indirectly um, causing harm to someone else. Um, and, uh, and so these cases emerge, or people who are looking at you know, gun control versus gun rights will oftentimes look at you know, the, the do the, these violent dogs that some people owned or holes that people dug or the case. So in any case, what I'm interested here in this Mishnah is nifratza balayla, it says. Nifratza balayla. If the pen was broken through at night, which is to say that um, they are, they're desperate, right? Why would the animal break through, right? They're, they're, um, they're desperate. I mean, we, we just got this, we just took in this little puppy about a month ago. Um, and, uh, and he doesn't try to break through. I mean, he's not so desperate when he's in his little cage. He's pretty happy in there. <laughs> but but these, these animals are desperate to get out. Nifratza uh, Balayla. And in the, they're so desperate that he's not even liable. He's not liable if they cause damage based upon their own desperation. You know, one of the, the, one of the big theological conversations I have with my kids is... Um, they always want to listen to Les Mis in the car. And they struggle with uh, Valjean, right? Is Valjean a good guy or, ba or bad guy? Because he, he stole, and stealing's really bad. But he stole in desperation to feed someone starving. And um, what does it mean to, uh, to act in desperation, uh, whether it's breaking a law that causes damage or one that doesn't cause damage? Um, <clears throat> but, to, but, to, but to want to, um, to escape confinement so badly um, that one crosses a border, that one breaks through a cage, so to speak. Dostoevsky once wrote, the best way to keep a prisoner from escaping is to make sure that he never knows he's in prison. Um, and so um, someone in a really bad job um, who is given some sort of reward to not let them know that they're in a really bad job, you know, 
they're given some sort of praise or a salary that's big enough for some, or some too in a marriage um, or, or the like. Uh, basically to, you know, uh, if you want not people to try not to escape, <laughs> to have them uh, be naive about their own confinement. Um, but that's also could be a moral answer. If, something, if someone or something has to be confined, can it be done in a way where it won't, uh, it won't lead to desperation of confinement? Okay, so thoughts on Bava Kama before we, uh, before we move on here. <clears throat> okay, so what is a cell? This is a strange way to identify what is a cell, but um, I found this issue of, does a prison cell get a mezuzah? Do you need a mezuzah on a prison cell? Interesting question, right? Rabbis grapple with these kinds of things. Um, and in Israel, I actually be interested to look at, at what's done today. Um, so, here, so here's what it says in, over here. David, you want to read for us? In the Birche Yosef. Okay, okay, so um, uh, who thinks that um, every prison cell should have a mezuzah? No, I mean, in the, source, in the sources. Oh, oh, oh. Nobody, nobody thinks that. Um, nobody thinks it's obligated, uh, it's chova, it's that there's an obligation. Um, uh, and who thinks you can't put one on? Nobody, right? The question is just um, ex a, a, obligated or not, and they say patur, exempt, which doesn't mean you, means you, you don't have to, but also that, that you're, not, um, uh, you're not prohibited from doing so. You just don't have to do it. You're, and, and so there's, the argument is not obligated, not obligated. It's why they're exempt. And the first, um, what's the view of the first position as to why there's no mezuzah? Mishum she'eno dirat kavod. Right? Okay, so as you know, the, the only room in a mezuzah that um, not only does not have to have, but cannot have a mezuzah is the bathroom, right? No mezuzah in the bathroom. Because it's not in dirat kavod. It's not, a, it's not an honorable dwelling place. My kids ask about this all the time. Like, what does this mean? Like, why, what's so dishonorable about here? You know, kids are obsessed with, like, toilets and, like, excrement and, like, and, like you know, but what's, this is where we have to go. God made us, so we have to go to the bathroom. So what's not honorable about, about going to the bathroom? So it's all kind of, uh, okay. So what's the second view? What, why, why a prison cell shouldn't have a uh, mezuzah? Okay, so that's very interesting. They can't imagine a prison cell having permanence, right? That the cage, the, the cell itself is dirat keva, they call it. It's a temporary place. Is one's confinement yeah. temporary or the cell? This, oh, 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 yes, yeah, the confinement, right? The cell might stay there for centuries, right? But, but um, a, your home needs a mezuzah. And you can't call this a home because it's not honorable like a home is the first view. Second view is it's not permanent like a home. You're just going to be passing through here for a few weeks, you know. And what's permanence in halakha? 30 days. 30 days is when it's something becomes a makom kavua, it's called. A permanence becomes 30 days. Um, so that plays out in Jewish law all over the place of the relevance of 30 days and what permanence means. But what I find interesting of that source is... They couldn't imagine the ideal idea of such a confinement having a long-term capacity, right? This is, this is a, a, a visiting place. As we'll see, the Torah has no view of a prison. There's no view of prison in the, in the Torah. The rabbis then have something called kippah. Kippah is basically a, a, a form of confinement. But we will look at alternatives to incarceration later, but... There is no model of prison in Jewish thought. I mean, and then you have the modern state of Israel, so then they implement something. But uh, that's, that's, you know, it's a diff that's a different thing. Yeah, you just got lashes. You got, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know I'm being recorded, and I don't want to be quoted as, as advocating for lashes. 
But it is entirely unclear to me that I would choose 30 years of imprisonment over um, 39 lashes that take a few minutes. It is entirely unclear to me that, that 40 years in prison or life imprisonment is, is, is not uh, more barbaric than, than corporal punishment. I know few people are advocating in the human rights world for lashes. Um, but if the goal of incarceration was actually deter, uh, um, deterrence, um, then we would empirically have to study what actually works for deterrence. If the goal is to ruin someone's life, um, or if the goal is to keep someone out of society, right? but if the goal is to ruin someone's life, 40 years in jail will certainly do that, um, and their families in many ways. Um, but it's not, so yeah, so they had lashes. In theory, there was death penalty. We've all talked about that. Um, and, um, uh, and yet here we see um, uh, that this cage, this cell of some form or another, um, means, uh, can give one the impression that they are discarded. You are discarded. I'm sure we've all had that feeling in our lives of feeling discarded. Whether you were let go from a job, you, someone broke up with you in a dating relationship, um, you know, maybe as a child you weren't given attention from parents. That sense of like, I don't matter. Like, I feel I don't matter. Um, it's actually a growing problem. We think that happiness has grown over the millennia. You would think with healthcare and all this and that. The suicide rates, comparison to all past eras, are through the roof. You know, the Western problems of, uh, of, 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 this, of, of suicide. So that's only one measure of many. But the, but the problem of humans feeling they have no value is a growing problem rather than a decreasing problem. Um, especially in a social media world where you want everyone to see you um, and you never can actually fully be seen. And so um, this cell is a, um, a form of, of, as a form of criminal justice, may be warranted, um, but not as, as I'll suggest, as the, 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 the profit motive industry we see today. The notion of confinement uh, so someone else profits, I think poses a moral problem. Okay, we're gonna jump through eras. Yes, please. Please, Steve, oh, please, yes. This borders yeah. Ah, Maybe current, no know. way. But it, it's funny. I, I wasn't looking at this closely. Mm. You said, okay, let's take a look at cell. And I immediately mm. thought of biology. Ah. I didn't think of something bad. I thought mm. of something that we're made of. We're made mm. of cells. Yeah. And then when, the thing about bathroom, mm. I'm voting for Mazuza in the bathroom. Ah. Because <laughs> uh, I, I think... The problem is back to life. Yeah. When I am playing ball... Mm -hmm. My legs are aching really bad, and I yeah. go and take a shower and feel that hot stream on the back mm, of my eyes. Mm. God, it feels good. Yeah, it's just right. such a relief, and it's where we preen and mm. fix ourselves up. So next election, I'm <laughs> Okay, well, you're with Rabbi Avadio Yosef, one of the greatest Jewish legalists of the 20th century, because he argued that bathrooms today are not, are not bathrooms anymore. One of the most radical Talmudic moves is called Ukimta which is you say, oh, the case they were talking about is not the case we're talking about. So, right, we talked about this. So all the rules are different, right? And that comes up in all kinds of things. Um, but it also comes up here because bathrooms, there, weren't, there, weren't, there wasn't a sewage system. Everything that was left there stayed there. Now things are removed. So it doesn't have that same status. But yeah, but you're talking about something, you're talking about something different, which is clearly something of human dignity. Because if you've been to the parts of the global south and villages where there's not such sanitation, um, that's what's lacking dignity. Um, actually having proper sanitation uh, and, 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 uh, that can lead to a more healthy lifestyle. And hot water, uh, sewage systems, these are huge Western you know, 20, 20th century privileges um, that, that bring dignity to life. So, so that, that's a cool challenge on that. Thank you for that. Um, so, uh, okay, Michel Foucault, as you know, uh, born in 1926, died in 1984, a French philosopher, wouldn't call himself a postmodernist, but clearly was in the postmodern world, and was interested in the relationship between power and knowledge and how social controls were used based on that. These are my own words, uh, but Steve, uh, you can read it for us. Michel Foucault, the, the 20th century. You see that part? There. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Michel Foucault, the 20th century French French postmodern philosopher argued extensively that Western society during the Enlightenment period embraced the humanistic virtues of reason and justice, which led to fundamental shifts in the use of power and discipline. The penal system had shifted from regulating one's body by means such as torture and corporal punishment 
replacement with technologies of punishment, regulating thoughts and behavior by means such as strict surveillance and psychological abuse. You could think of sleep deprivation and all of that stuff. The disciplinary punishment mm -hmm. provides a potential abuse of power on the part of the parole officer, jailer, psychologist, and program facilitator over to prisoner. Foucault does not see the penal system as existing only in the margins of society, but rather it manifests itself in many different ways throughout society. He views the prison, the school, the army barracks, and the workshop as completely interconnected in how discipline is administered. Foucault also argues that disciplinary measures taken within the prison walls perpetuate criminal factories convincing the inmates that they are lazy, evil, useless, deviant failures. Mm. Okay, so actually just before we, we talk about Foucault, Steve, something we were talking about on Shabbat actually, um, that there are billionaires working towards immortality um, and uh, nanotechnology and genetic uh, re, you know, remodification, regeneration, and, and going back to the cell, um, and actually those who feel con confined by sort of the, the, on the cellular level as it exists today, um, who, are, who are working to, uh, um, you know, are, are working to regenerate that. But, but going back to Foucault, so Foucault, um, Foucault really took, uh, and, and if you want to check out this book, Discipline and Punishment is where I was drawing from here, um, The Birth of the Prison, looks at how these, these, the, our discipline system is interconnected with our, um, our other institutions and how they operate, and the correlation between expulsions in school um, being, uh, and um, harsher punishments in jail. We're in a, uh, we've moved from a consequentialist utilitarian era of punishment into a deontological area, a more Kantian area. Basically, you get what you deserve, as opposed to asking, does the punishment serve what's best for society, for the taxpayer, for the victim, for the perpetrator, um, for, you know, um, uh, for the, you know f to ensure there's not more crime. Um, we ask, what does this person deserve? Um, regardless of what that means for a taxpayer, what that means for the family of the perpetrator, what, it, what the victim wants. And so um, these new technologies of punishment that emerge to basically uh, belittle and control uh, those, those in jail psychologically uh, more, more deeply um, is something that has been, been, been studied uh, extensively um, and show actually why uh, the reentry level is because is, uh, the the so excuse me the the, the recidivism level it continues uh, to be so so problematic um, that um, that those who can't re-enter society end up back in prison, and that's partially because of our failure to re-enter them to society, and partially because of some of these control mechanisms in prison prison which become harder and harder psychologically to emerge from. So here, um, it, you know, it's interesting to relate that what's the place that Jews were freed from. Egypt, and, and how do you say that in Hebrew? Mitzrayim, which is the, what's the root word there? Narrow, tsar, right? Mitzrayim, the, the word there is tsar, which can mean pain or it can mean narrow, right? Right, so, you know, the Rabbi Nachman, Kohalam Kula, Gesher Tsar Meod, a very narrow bridge. Gesher Tsar Meod, so a very narrow place. And if you think about that, that one of the things we learn about God in this whole book of Exodus is that God liberates people from a narrow place. And we have the command of halakhta bedrachav, to emulate the divine, to liberate others from a narrow place, um, is the story of Exodus. To liberate ourselves and to liberate others from narrow places, <clears throat> from those who are confined. The Toldot Yaakov Yosef says on Min HaMetzar, which is one of the famous Psalms in the book of Tehillim, uh, Sefer Tehillim, Min um, HaMetzar, that I call to God, min hametzar, which comes from, this, from, from my place of distress, it's normally translated, from, this, from my place of distress, I cry out to God. But min hametzar, we're in this narrow place of confinement and calling out beyond ourselves toward God. And he says, we then call from a, a broad place of expansiveness. Which he's saying that, that, that when we call from min hametzar, kratiyah, that when we call from that narrow place towards God, we spiritually move to a place of expansiveness. We're calling initially from confinement and ultimately from a place of freedom. That's how he understands this idea of 
We're not just crying out, but we're crying to God, which itself is a liberation. It's a spiritual liberation because it's an expansiveness. It's a place of moving from self to the divine, to the divine other. So why does God, why does God free the Israelites? Moses doesn't want to do it. Oh, yeah, I mean, you mean Moses asks Pharaoh? Right. Yeah, but he doesn't want to do that at all. God asks him to do this, and he doesn't want to do it. Um, but that's interesting, yeah. I mean, but yeah, he becomes interested in the project, right? He becomes interested, and you could say, so that, so that could be a first interesting answer, is that, um, is that some, there's a leader there who who's, says he's not ready, but, but on a deeper level is ready, right? Okay, why else would you say? Ah, okay, great. Because sort of a, a global, eternal education that in that moment and beyond of like teaching, yeah, and that, that's all over the sources, teaching the power of God um, and teaching, the, you know, good versus evil, yeah. Okay, great. The most traditional answer is freedom itself has no value. Freedom is only good if it has a responsibility. And the, the, the Yitziat Mitzrayim, the, the leaving of Egypt, matters because of ultimately of, of Har Sinai, receiving Torah at Sinai, and, all, and then going to the promised land, right? The, the, that destiny that comes with it. But the, one of the first sources we see when, is when does the text say God pays attention? When, when, when the cry yes, God hears the cry. God hears the cry, and it says, Vayiskor, and God remembers Britavot. The, um, the, the covenant with the ancestors. So you might say it's because Moshe is there. You might say it's because of Sinai, right, um, and, and responsibility that is to come. But one of these earliest sources says, why are they liberated? Because God hears crying. And God is good, and uh, God wants to respond to suffering. Um, and so the, the most, if somebody said to me, what is the basis of Jewish ethics? One of the first answers I would give is, um, God does good and we want to emulate God's good. imitatio dei. And so, um, uh, so freedom itself is a concern because um, God, God, God's self is concerned with freedom. And so confinement is not obviously, more, it's not morally measurable. We think of pain as a problem Someone feels pain, we want to relieve them of pain. Dying, we think of a problem. But you don't hear as much talk in moral philosophy or even in Jewish texts about confinement. Is the suffering of confinement itself a problem? And here I think the Egypt is the model this, of coming out of this place of, of Mitzrayim. You know, the Rad Baz, Rabbi David Ibn Zimra of the 15th century Spain and later Israel, um, tells, gives a great parable, which I think about all the time. The jailer says to the imprisoned, you get one day free, you get one day free a year. Which day are you going to choose? You can have one day free. Yom Kippur, the holiest day, right? Is it going to be the first day of Pesach, right? What day are you going to get free? What, your anniversary? <laughs> I guess to some that would be the right answer. Right? Opening day. Opening day! <laughs> well, that's the answer. The answer is today, right now, right? You want freedom. You want divine clinging. There's no date for it. It's right now. Right? Freedom starts right now. Right? So uh, I, I, uh, I, I think about this Rod Baz all the time, this sense of, uh, oh, I'm going to go to a retreat for meditation in six months. Right? I'm going to do a mitzvah on my calendar in a month. I'm going to go to this lecture or whatever the case is. Right? You want, you want liberation, like, right now. It's right here for you. You don't have to wait for this, this day. You know, you can be freed from this, from this prison. So, um, so why do we have these systems in place? Okay, let's look at Kafka um, from this book, from this uh, article, A Hunger Artist. Okay, Craig, I think we're up to you. Obsession with voyeurism. This perversion of the truth familiar to the artist, though it was, always unnerved him afresh and proved too much for him. What was a consequence of the premature ending of his fast was here presented as the cause of it. To fight against this lack of understanding, against a whole world of non-understanding non was impossible. 
Okay, great. So if you've never read The Hunger Artist, it's a fascinating, a very short read. It's a little short story or poem. Uh, I'm not, I don't think it's a poem, a short story. Um, and that, there, and uh, that suggesting there's this obsession with seeing others suffer. Um, that we might all agree we're against suffering, but people want to watch this guy in a cage starve himself. He himself is an exhibit at the zoo. This hunger artist who just sits there and doesn't eat, starves himself. And the people are obsessed. They point at him. They laugh at him. They think about him. They throw things at him. Um, and yet, um, so there is this whole thing. And this, is, this historically was true about punishment. You hung people in the public square. You stoned them in the public square. People wanted to see it. People wanted to see people be punished. And yet the flip is also true. The non-transparency of the systems. Where do we put, as we'll see the correlation between factory farms and mass industrial prisons? In the middle of nowhere where no one can see them, right? What's that? Deliberately. Deliberately. Um, and so, there, so there, there's, there's two sides to it. The side that both people want to see this, um, and also, and that's why like negative news sells, going back to the power of fear. Negative news sells more than positive news. You have to go to like the Good News Network to like look for inspiring stories, you know? Occasionally like the news will put it. But mostly people want to see like, like, what's, tell me all the bad things that are happening. It's, it's more addictive. Um, and yet, um, this, um, uh, and yet the non-transparency on the other hand, we don't want to look at these problems, sweep it away, you know, push it away, you know, push it away from us. So here I want to look at something a little bit radical. There's these two sisters, the co-sisters. Um, they're, they're black animal rights activists, these two young women. Um, I think one or both are lesbians also, but I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. There is some queer dimension there. But both, basically, their identity here is feminism, black, and, um, and, and their animal rights interests. And here, they uh, talk about the factory farming process. And, and, and I'll read just these three quick quotes, which are a bit radical, but are intended to be provocative. Almost any good analysis of racism or coloniality usually calls attention to the degree to which racialized folks are animalized. That is, we animalize or dehumanize certain folks individually or as groups, thereby justifying their violation, right? If you can make a human into an animal, you can justify what you can do to them, right? Put them in the cage. This is an animal. Look what he, this person did to people. You know, this, the, you know um, they were convicted of horrible crimes. They're a true animal. You hear people say that all, you know, all the time. Put them away, put them away, right? And so basically do whatever you want to them because they're in the status of animal. As long as these notions, the animal and the human are intact, white supremacy remains intact. Whoa, how'd you get there? For this reason, I've advised against a strategy of humanizing groups of color. She says, you want to treat black people like, like, full like full citizens of dignity. Don't just humanize us or gaining protections for vulnerable groups on the basis of their humanity. That's, um, this law professor um, similarly warns us about relying on theories in which the subhuman is crucial, such as humanist and liberal theories. Whether motivated by a focus on human vulnerability, non-human vulnerability, or both pursuing any anti-violence projects with the current anthropocentric status quo seriously undercuts those very same projects. See, blah, blah, blah. As a result of holding this unique position, namely that uprooting white supremacy is going to involve uprooting the human-animal divide. I'll, I'll, I'll unpack that in a minute. One more paragraph. The racial hierarchy and racism, do not, not to mention the racial thinking it generates, was the novel way white Western Europeans in the colonial period legally and morally placed groups outside the human zone. As a result, the authors of this system were deeply invested in a rigid species divide where human indicated the domain of morality and law, and animal was a space of absence of being and lawlessness, inviting a need to be controlled, disciplined, and contained by humans. So, here, so here's their argument, argument in a nutshell, and you're welcome to agree or disagree. Um, but essentially, there's a, that what white supremacy did was it said there's a hierarchy of who matters and who doesn't. Who's at the pinnacle? Well, I guess the four of us in the room, right? White men, <laughs> right? Men are the pinnacle of the hierarchy. Who's next? The white woman, okay? Then comes the black man, then the black woman, and then, um, and then an animal, right? Um, and so um, they're basically um, arguing that, that what white supremacy did was it created hierarchies of who actually matters, whose suffering matters. And it put the white man higher than the black man. 
and, um, and then it put the human above the animal. So it says, as soon as you allow for the hum animal-human di uh, divide, you allow for this hierarchy, which was, which was also created by white supremacy, to also exist. Yes, please. I, I personally experienced yeah. this yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. There was a beautiful park across the street. You go play ball, we yeah. get thirsty. And there was a sign above the water fountain which said, no colors. You weren't alive then. No colors, no Jews, and no dogs allowed to drink. Oh, very interesting. Meaning, do you think the dogs were symbolic, or were people back in the day feed, like, have their dogs drink water from water fountains? Yeah, I mean, nowadays we all love dogs. I mean, I can't get enough of dogs. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Oh, okay, very interesting. No, right. Okay, it said all three of them. Yes. Okay, yeah, fascinating, right. Yes. No colors, no Jews, no dogs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Craig. Craig. So I, I, I just... We've had hierarchies all through civilization, right. and to me, I think the whole white supremacy, the colonialism, mm -hmm. imperialism, I think is an extension of that. It's uh -huh. not an, it is an invention of white civilization, mm -hmm. but it's also building on previous hierarchies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right, yeah, okay, right, so, great, great point. Right, you, go, you might even say it's, um, it's part of human psyche, uh, inevitably. I mean, the, the fact that it's so pervasive, caste systems and the like. Right. Um, right. So, and I, I'm not trying to break this. No, please do, please do, yeah. But yeah. I, I think that it's not solely racism that created it. Great, 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 yeah. It goes, it goes even further, and, um, uh, and I think Jewishly we know that we are interested in a human-animal divide. Um, certainly in the creation story, there's a divide that happens in terms of, in terms of order. Ju Jewish ethics is quite clear th that, um, that uh, if you had the opportunity to save a life, a human life or an animal life, you should choose a human life. Now, whether it's so clear that, um, that um, you should never be able to spend on an animal, because technically that could have been spent on a human life, you know, I haven't, nobody argues. Let's say you spend, um, whether you spent $1,000 um, on dog food for the year, and that could have been spent to like save, you know, a person's, you know, human's life or something. Uh, but nobody says you can't have a dog because of that reason or whatever the case is. But um, actually it's interesting, one of our recent speakers talked about uh, Levinas and how he said um, that this dog in the concentration camp was the last Kantian in Nazi Germany because um, every German viewed them as like, you know, um, despicable vermin. And then he remembers seeing this one dog who entered the concentration camp and looked at them like they were just regular humans. I remember looking at this dog and, 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 and feeling that transcendental value that, that occurred there. Um, but yeah, so anyways, uh, I think there's, there's, there's important challenges to be made here. The one you made and the one, um, that, that Jewish values see human life as more important than animal life, even though there's a concern for animal suffering. And their point, too, is that hierarchies gone too far uh, can be abused in such ways. Why should I care about an animal at all? They're not human. Or why should I care about this human at all? They're really an animal. Rabbi Soloveitchik, <clears throat> 1903 to 1993, who was um, born in present-day Belarus and really a, a Torah sage and then taught in New York City uh, his, his adult life, um, a, really a profound prof professor in addition, uh, excuse me, a philosopher in addition to being a Talmudist. And um, he writes here in this essay on freedom and slavery. Um, Rab uh, I, actually, he doesn't write this exactly. I, I pulled this out of context. But Rabbi Soloveitchik provides a conceptual framework for slavery that resonates in our contemporary context. Slavery is portrayed in Jewish law as not only a physical condition, but a psychological reality that we must personally work to heal if we are to realize our own, if we are to realize our own liberty. And so he deals here with this issue also of psychological entrapments. Uh, let me go back to him here, let's see. He should be, uh, there he is, okay. Um, Soloveitchik. So he, uh, um, and so then what, this becomes a good Seder conversation point, Pesach Seder point. Um, oh, how, well, what are we enslaved to today? What are, what's our, what are our own spaces of confinement? So the Meshech the Chachma, uh, the Meshech Chachma, 
Uh, actually, this other guy was the Meshachachma here, this guy. Um, he, uh, 19th century Lithuanian thinker. His real name is Meir Simcha. Um, he's from Dvinsk. And, um, and he's grappling with the issue of what makes us um, B'Tselem Elohim. What is it that makes us create in the image of God? Um, let's throw out some suggestions. What is it about humans that make us, create, that make us in the image of God? Ah. I think one of the reasons, and this is my own stuff, uh, one of the reasons that God did, did not want the Jews to approach the mountain and see him because his image was so eternal and so ubiquitous and so varied and so many that mm. Jews make people go crazy. And that's mm. the way I think of the image of God, not as a solitary source sitting on a throne, mm. but everything that can possibly be Mm, mm. Very nice, right? Yeah, right. In the right in a in a panentheistic theology that God is everything, um, and so everything is a mirror ultimately to divine revelation. Right? Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So so um, what 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 are some of the popular responses that of, that makes humans godlike? Self awareness. Self awareness. Okay, very interesting. Yep, self-awareness. Just compassionate. Just compassionate, right? That basic moral, uh, a bit, the abil even the ability to make moral decisions, uh, not to mention actually making them, right? Um, the philosophers, of course, think it's cognition. Um, that They think our ability to think, because they think of God as a thinking be being the, in the Aristotelian or Maimonidean tradition. The most radical ones, so we have sources that think it's physical, that actually it's physical, um, that we look like God to some degree. <laughs> Physically, so they, 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 it's sheer coma. The Kabbalists imagine the physical dimensions of God. They talk about God's body. Right? That sounds more Christian, but it's in Kabbalah too. Um, and which is also to say that there's no human being you could see and they not be a revelation of, of what God looks like, according to that view. Some say it's the social capacity. Um, you know, the, of our ability to relate, you know, and build social networks. The other way to ask this question is what makes a human different than all other species, uh, which wouldn't necessarily give us the answer. But may, he, he, here's what the Meshachachma says. The image of God is the ability to make independent decisions. Free will! God is ultimately free. And so what makes us godlike is that we are free. We are free. We're the... Um, God's foreknowledge, notwithstanding, God's knowledge is not external like humans, but is a part of his essence. We can't understand this, for if we knew God, we would be God. But we do know that free choice is a result of God pulling back, allowing room for God's creatures to make decisions. If thus says, let us make humans in our image, the verse thus means that God left space for humanity to freely choose between good and evil, <clears throat> either going against his own nature or against God, which is why the verse speaks in the plural. So um, it's interesting. Free will prior to, to Kant, uh, prior to modernity, meant you know what's good and you know what's bad. And now you need to have the will to make the right choice. In modernity, it, uh, it starts to become unclear what's good and what's evil, right? So free will starts to mean you are free to choose what actually is good. That becomes a problem that becomes a big moral problem um, with the relativity of truth. Um, and so now I have to actually decide what is good, not just condition myself to do what everybody knows to be good, as it used to be, right? Some parents still talk to children like that. You know what's good, now it's just your choice to do it. Where sometimes the kids are also trying to grapple with what's actually good here, you know? Um, so, so, uh, so the Meshachachman thinks freedom itself is good and is necessary for the human experience that we actually strip a human of the humanity, of what is constitutive of their humanity, by making it impossible for them to make any real choices. Um, so what it means to be in a cage, and what it means to be stripped of your most basic human enterprise, um, of making choices, um, and particular moral choices, um, is actually destructive to the soul in other ways. So here's our, our source we quoted otherwise from Masechet Ta'anit, the, tra the Talmudic tractate of dealing with fast days and theodicy. 
Oh, chavruta o mituta. Friendship or death. Give me friendship or give me death. We die in isolation. Here is a sort of confinement which is relatively pleasant. I mean, you can see people. To some degree, you can even interact in, in a system like that. Um, actually, for, uh, for factory farming, even that would be pleasant. These animals can't move so much, but at least they can touch each other. Because if you have no physical contact, you're pulled away from your mother, you never nurse, you're put into a, into a crate where you can never even touch another being. Um, that humans need intimacy or a physical contact. That's what, in, in a hospital, one of the most powerful things you can do, as you know, is to hold someone's hand, to, to, to touch them. Yes, please. Uh, David Brooks, a columnist. Oh, yes. New York Times yes. wrote an article called The Power of Touch. Mm. Yes, yes. Oh, good. I'll have to go back and find that. Um, what was that recent? No. One of the things, actually, going back to Soloveitchik, one of the, you, you, I don't know if you read his book on character, David Brooks. So it, his, his, his argument emerges from Soloveitchik, actually, where he says, today we're obsessed with resume virtues instead of eulogy virtues. That people think about, what do I need to do so that I'm a more impressive person, i.e. my resume is more impressive, what somebody would read to announce me, as opposed to my eulogy virtues, what somebody would say about me if I had died, that the eulogy virtues are what, are what truly matter. Uh, so I think about that all the time. That's based on Soloveitchik's distinction also. So, um, um, Oh, here's another kind of cell where the, 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 the indignity is not isolation. It's just the absolute uh, mess, um, no natural light. Here, the indignity of, of the order where not only no contact, the darkness, going back to Foucault, the system is set up where you can be seen and, um, and the, the, the surveillance is constant. Um, solitary confinement is a whole other degree that we know uh, um, makes re-entry almost impossible, brain damage that, that emerges in such, uh, such space. That was Rabbi Soloveitchik, Meshach Chachma. Um, and then we'll come back to this guy later, Dessler. Um, this is actually very pleasant for, 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 uh, uh, for these animals because there's, again, some interaction, some social d uh, dynamics that emerge. Um, if you've been in these places, I've been a student of prisons for a while. I, I go in to, to visit with inmates but um, uh, around the world, but, but also around the world, whenever there's a tour of an old, of an old you know, like, like I always wanted to see Mandela, I went to Mandela's cell, I wanted to be in his cell, you know, in other countries, in Europe, and, and in America, I went, you know, in Alcatraz, I want to see these cells, because I'm interested in the, in the psychology of punishment. Um, uh, there's Alcatraz, of course, and then, um, well, we don't have to get too graphic with the meat, or end of life. Um, but the lines, the, 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 the socializing that happens in there, um, in, some, in some cases they allow, they allow them to be educated. Um, we'll come back to that. Well, Rav Koch will definitely come back to as well. I will come back to those points. So, um, but basically this psychology of, of confinement, um, intentionally isolating um, in order to break down uh, in order to break down dignity and, and break down, you know, freedom of thought, um, was justified, you know, as a security measure. Uh, but actually, I want to argue, makes us less safe. It makes us less safe because of the harm that's done there. So, um, okay, let's. We're going to skip over Michael Pollan, even though the, the fast food industry is in, food industry industry is relevant and interesting, and the correlation between hyperconvenience and violence. If you if you've read Omnivore's Dilemma or the Botany of Desire, Professor Nathaniel Berman brought this next Zohar source. He brought it to VBM, and um, and and it's really fascinating. One who gives tzedakah to a poor person makes perfect the holy name above. For tzedakah is the tree of life, and tzedakah gives to tzedek, gives to justice. And when it gives to tzedek, when they join one to the other, the holy name is found to be per perfected. So I thought this source was so awesome, that basically tzedek is a name of God, and tzedakah is a name of God. Um, justice and doing justice monetarily are names of God. Oh, sorry, sorry. Did I skip too far ahead? Right after that Aramaic... <laughs> in the Zohar. Do you find it? Thank you. Okay. That Tzedek is a name of God and Tzedakah is a name of God and we reunite God through um, doing such acts of justice. This is like a great like, activist Zohar of how you could build off this. And then I was thinking about it. The Nitzotzot, the Nitzotzot are the sparks, right? Right, Steve? That these sparks 
in the Shvirat HaKelim, in the breaking of these, ves of these divine vessels, get shattered all over the place, right? And, where, where, and what happens to them? They get trapped, right? And so they get trapped with these shells around them, with these klipot. Um, and our job in tikkun olam, according to Kabbalah, is tikkun olam, right? Tikkun olam is the job the Kabbalah, the, the Kabbalah say. And what tikkun olam to them means is free the nitzotzot from the klipot. There are these shells of evil that have these divine sparks trapped. And any time you do a mitzvah, you're like a superhero with like a shooter that you shoot this evil shell and you liberate the spark and it illuminates the world, right? And so, but going even further here, and so at best, um, at, um, at best, um, it's these klipot are a necessary evil. Um, they're necessarily evil because there's too much light for us to see and the world is not unified yet. So they have the, they're entrapped in there. And so, too, so this, this the imprisonment of these sparks, our job is to break through that prison and liberate that light. So here's where Kabbalah intersects with liberation theology, right? Liberation that God is confined. God is confined. And when we are liberating the oppressed, when we unite tzedek and tzedakah, when economic resources and liberation intersect, we are literally liberating God. We are bringing yichud. We are bringing unity to God's name. We are bringing unity to the cosmos. That God is broken to the, to the, to the philosophers. This is so heretical. But to the Kabbalists, God is broken and needs reunification. And our job is to do that. Now, what's interesting, we think of tzimtzum as something positive. Tzimtzum. So uh, tzimtzum is the most classical parental advice, right? How do you raise a child? With a little tzimtzum. You got to pull back and give a little space for them to make choices, right? Don't hover over too much, right? I guess that applies to management too. But, um, but, but education at, uh, at least, uh, or, or, or parenting. Um, and why does God pull back? Why does God allow evil to happen in the world? Because of love for, for humans. Because so that we can have freedom to make choices. If God was just in our face, right? My dad always asked me that. When is God going to make an appearance, right? We need another, you know, splitting of the sea. <laughs> yes, if I have the answer, right? But simsum happens in order that humans can be free and make choices. So it's good, right? It's good. God allows evil to happen, not so good, but in order that humans can make free choices, because as we said, the human enterprise only matters because humans have choice, and that choice is only real if, it, if, you, if there's actually evil, and so it's good. But here we see Tzimtzum is bad. Why? Because the Ein Sof, the infinite divine presence and manifestation in the world, is confined. Tzimtzum means that God is, I, I, um, I don't know, um, I'd have to remember just to keep... That, that God is confined now, um, is trapped, right? And so we don't just care about the asylum seeker who um, is, is, is fleeing confinement um, and brutal, brutalization, um, a young girl who's fleeing rape or someone who's fleeing um, you know, gang violence, whatever the case is, deep extreme poverty. Um, we, we don't just care about them uh, because of the human hu humanity, although that would be enough. We don't just care about the factory farming industry and, and, and the calf that never is free from the crate and is prodded and tortured and then, um, and then, and then slaughtered um, only because we know of the pain they go through. Um, we don't just care about someone in depression or someone in an abusive relationship because of that, but also because theologically the whole cosmos depends on it. God's liberation depends on our ability to liberate others as well. Yes? Um, the fact that we're reading ancient sources yeah. and contemporary sources, yeah. I'm saying this because yeah. it's really a question. Right. Doesn't that imply an inevitability of confinement? Uh, what do you mean? How do we get around that? that, that the same problems. Mm. Oh, oh I see. Oh, yeah. Today. And you could say that about inequality, and mm. I think survival of the fittest, maybe that's the Bible. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Because same things today that happened yesterday, but in different uniforms. 
Ah, okay, okay, great. So I, I, can I raise your ante? <laughs> do, do people still say that? Like when, yeah. when we played cards as a kid, yeah. I like avoid gambling because I'd be the type who would like, would like immerse myself in gambling if I could. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so, but uh, if I can raise your ante, is that, uh, no, seriously, do we say that? Yeah, okay. Um, what postmodern philosophers say is that every form of liberation leads to a new form of oppression. Um, they would say, uh, for example, um, some of them would say in ways that might make some of us uncomfortable, um, the Jewish people were liberated with statehood, but it led to a new oppression of a, of a Palestinian population. Um, now that's very complicated, and I, and I don't wanna go too deeply there. Or some might say, I don't wanna get into presidential politics, but let me think about it, how to say it without, with, well, to try to avoid it. Um, you have your first black president, right? That's, that's progress, right, for people of color to show that you could break through that. Um, but the b angry backlash will be so strong of what emerges from having a black president that, you, that, that um, it's gonna be even harder to, to clean up the, ra the racism that emerges from that angry back backlash. So there are those who, who argue um, exactly this point that injustice is not only um, inevitable, but that any liberation creates a new form of oppression, um, sometimes intentionally and sometimes totally unintentionally. Um, or if you just look at um, the, the, the birth of the nation state, you break down kingdoms and now you have nation states, but the, but the problems that emerge there, or with, um, or with capitalism or with any new era of progress, um, there, there becomes a new exploited. Um, Peter, uh, no, not Peter Singer, but um, um, the, uh, um, the, the psychologist at Harvard, the most famous psychologist at Harvard, Steven Pinker, um, argues that the, that the, the amount of suffering uh, that occurs um, due to violence every century uh, drastically drops. Now there's, there's, there's arguments to be made against that, but he wants to say the progress is real. Progress is real and that we, um, we think more about warfare today, but the number of people who are killed by war or by, by violence is consistently going down. Um, and so uh, let, me give, let me give what I think is the most Jewish answer, um, which is that um, we don't know, we don't know um, what works. Um, we don't know what works, and we don't know if it will be eradicated, but we're not free from, desist, from desisting doing the work. Mm -hmm. That famous Pirkei vote, right? That it's not on all of us to end it, but we can't desist. And so even though we've always talked about it, um, uh, and that it seems to not be removed, and there's debates about whether it's increasing or decreasing, what, which way are we headed today? Uh, nonetheless, our job spiritually and ethically is to always be a force against it. Now the prophets think an era will come, that we are moving towards Yemei Mashiach, towards a prophetic era, and in a prophetic era, there's a, a disagreement between the Kabbalists and the rationalists. The, the, the Kabbalists think everything will be different, Fundamental human nature is different. We won't even want to be violent, right? The rationalists think, no, human nature is the same, society is as it is, but um, we've kind of mastered things like violence. We've figured out ways uh, to eradicate violence from human, from human experience uh, without changing human nature. Um, so lots more to say on that um, because I want to honor our time. Man, I had so much more I wanted to do here and I'm sorry we didn't get to it, but... Um, <coughs> If you'll give me two minutes, um, <clears throat> oh, I should have put, put page numbers on this. But if you skip to a few, uh, three pages forward, before it says incarceration, liberty, and dignity, it's, the paragraph starts currently. Currently, an unprecedented number of individuals live, live in captivity. So this goes to your point, uh, Steve, that actually it's not only has this eternal problem always been here, it's growing. In the U.S., over two million people are incarcerated in prisons. Two million. Around the world, men, women, and children are held as slaves. Wars and natural disasters have created refugees who live in dangerously deprived conditions and con confined camps. More refugees in the world today than all of human history, right? So the confinement of refugees to camps, and that's states don't want to receive them, so they're stuck in camps. Tens of billions of animals are captives of the food industry before they're slaughtered. Hundreds of thousands of animals are kept in labs, zoos, and aquaria. Millions of pets are captives in our homes. So the problem is a very serious one. And many um, don't take the issue of captivity as seriously as they should. And so I, I, what I was gonna conclude with 
were two alternatives to incarceration. One is the city of refuge, the biblical model. You can look at that passage in Numbers later. That basically as an alternative to incarceration, what the Bible did know, the Torah knew of a place um, where unintentional, non-intentional murderers could go. And they would go to this, and the society had to more or less operate like a society as we know it. If you look at this Talmudic passage from Makot, that comes right after that biblical passage. These cities of refuge, they're not made to be small nor large. Rather, they are medium-sized cities. We do not set up these cities in any <clears throat> place other than the one with a water source. If there's not a water source, we transport water there. We do not set up these cities except in a place where there are markets. We also do not set up these cities except where there's a sizable population. If the population dwindles, we add to people, we bring them in. Right? So you don't put this in the middle of the cornfields, in the middle of nowhere, these, these, these people who were guilty of this crime and have to keep society safe. You put them in this place where there were leaders. They were allowed to bring their students there, their families, and uh, it's a normally operating city. And thus, these people um, could develop uh, as holistic human beings as opposed to um, merely be tortured. The other model, and here you might think I'm trying to bring back slavery, which I'm not, but was indentured servitude. If you got a white-collar crime, um, should Madoff just be serving a life sentence? I mean, hundreds of life sentences, whatever Madoff's got, right? Or should he be serving time in some other way? So it, the, the biblical model is, 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 is avdut, indentured servitude. Um, you, you don't go to, to uh, debtor's jail. Is it debtor's jail? Is that what you called it? Prison. De debtor's prison. prison. Debtor's prison. Um, but actually, you need to work off your debt. Uh, and a debt shouldn't, maybe shouldn't even be a crime. That's a whole other conversation. But essentially, there are, all these, all, there are these alternatives. Okay, I'm not going to share Dessler in the answer of time, but, I, but let's close with Cook, just because I always like to cl close with, uh, <laughs> with Rob Cook. Um, Kabbalist, pluralist, first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Israel, of pre-state Israel, um, writes here, we must liberate ourselves, this is the last source, we must liberate ourselves from confinement within our private concerns. This reduces us to the worst kind of smallness and brings upon us endless physical and spiritual distress. It is necessary for us to raise our thought and will and our basic preoccupations toward universality, to the inclusion of all, to the whole world, to humankind, to the Jewish people, to all existence. The firmer our vision of universality, the greater joy we will experience and the more we will merit divine illumination. Or as Martin Luther King says, no one is free until all people are free, right? So um, on the justice level, I, I, I wanna argue that confinement is a moral issue we don't grapple adequately with for animals and for humans, whether it's refugees or asylum seekers, whether it's prisoners who are there, who are guilty of their crime or not. Uh, on a mental illness level, we don't think about confinement in a way that, that brings new social and moral responsibilities. Um, but also on an individual level, that this is the theme of the Jewish people, that um, God liberates us from narrow spaces to move towards responsibility. Um, and thus, at the very least, we can ask ourselves, who are those that I need to help offer liberation to? How can I help to liberate myself? And with every ounce of liberation I achieve, what is the new responsibility that comes with, comes with that? that? Which is what Dessler's point was gonna be. Um, that um, the more free we are, the more responsibility we have. And with that responsibility, we have towards liberating others as well. Um, so uh, closing uh, thoughts or uh, questions? Well, it just seems to me yeah. that underlying this is that also, with all of those things that Rod Cook was saying, yeah. we need to inject the principle of human dignity. Are these actions, these systems yeah. we're making, yeah. uh, respecting human dignity yeah. and, and putting that forth? I think everything is so far, you mm -hmm. know, it's based on dollars and cents so much. Yes, right. Instead of human dignity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And if you can't convince someone of that, you can't convince someone that human dignity matters and that our policies, right, bracket what someone's immigration uh, policy, um, you know, they, they hold as to who should be let in for what cases. That when someone is in your control, that you not separate a parent from a child, 
that you not cage someone who is in an experience of trauma, right? That at the very least, um, you treat this person as a person of dignity. Doesn't mean you have to grant them citizenship right now, um, but they're a person of dignity. Someone is in jail for whatever they are in their, they're in prison for, um, that this is still someone who has human dignity, right? And if you can't convince someone of that principle or that belief, which is so fundamental to Jewish thought, then, then, then maybe we can convince them on an instrumental level. That when you strip someone of their dignity, the type of person they can become will be harmful to others, right? That if you, if you want to put someone in solitary confinement because you don't think they have dignity, at least you should know that the harm they will be able to cause when you strip someone of their dignity um, is that much greater. So much more. <laughs> I, I, I wish we had time to spend more, more uh, focus on celebrating achievement and recognizing how great so many people are. And maybe it's my own experience. I, I meet so many phenomenal people who are doing simply simple great things. Just the simplest is to say someone's name. And I learned that from one of the people that I volunteered for. Mm. He said yeah. two weeks before his death, 95 years old, and sit here all day yeah. and wait for that crowd door to open. Wow. And wait for somebody to say my name. Mm. So there, there are so many magnificent things that are happening. Yeah. And I know confinement yeah. is a pretty significant yeah. thing, yeah. but Celebrating success and achievement. Yeah, yeah. No, but I think that that's exactly a response to this. People don't feel seen, don't feel valued. And I think you're right, valuing people is a form of liberation. So, um, so thank you for that. And I think, uh, uh, so I just give us all the bracha and I hope you'll give it back to me that um, in each moment of our day, um, we have the opportunity to destroy or to create, to, to lower someone or raise them up and that we see how much is at stake there for their liberation, for our own liberation, which is bound up with theirs, um, and for divine liberation. In that moment, that those nitsotsot that are in the klipot, our chance to, to liberate that within that, within that very moment um, offers uh, that path towards the Messianic era. So, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.